you got your Bible, I invite you to turn with me once more to the second chapter of 1 John, where this morning we'll look again at verses 18 through 27. We're going to study through the book of 1 John, and last week we began looking at this paragraph beginning with verse 18, stretching all the way into verse 27. And while you're finding your place, uh, you know that very few criminals are sought after with more vigor than those who try to make their own money. Counterfeiters. Counterfeit currency is considered to be such a threat to the very fabric of the United States that along with treason, it's only one of two criminal offenses actually named in the U.S. Constitution. You think of the U.S. Secret Service and you think, well, they're the dudes that guard the president. But you know, the Secret Service was actually formed in 1865 by the Treasury Department to combat counterfeit currency. You know, the arrival of technology gave almost anyone with access to Photoshop and a scanner the means to try to print their own money. And for the most part, those counterfeiting operations are relatively small, usually totaling no more than $10,000. But in January of 2005, the U.S. Secret Service field office in Los Angeles, California, discovered a fake $100 bill of remarkably high quality. Four years later, there was a man named Albert Talton who was in their custody responsible for putting counterfeit currency into circulation, and he made it through some supplies that he had purchased at a local Staples And when this guy set out to circumvent all of the Treasury Department's security measures, I mean, he had no background in graphic design or printing. He didn't even own a computer. But after gathering all the stuff that he needed, he began making his first attempt at counterfeit currency with just a simple Hewlett-Packard all-in-one inkjet printer and scanner. And by the time it was said and done and when he was arrested... His counterfeit money had been totaled at upwards of $7 million, circulated in every state in the Union, as well as nine foreign countries. Now, I know you've heard this before, but the feds are extremely familiar with the real deal, and they know how to spot a counterfeit when they see one. And in a similar way, you and I, as the followers of Jesus, should be so acquainted and intimately aware of the truth, that we're immediately able to spot a counterfeit whenever we hear it. And John says here in this passage that anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ or anyone who denies the Father and the Son, anyone who denies the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, John says that it's counterfeit currency. It's not the real deal. So let's read, beginning with verse 18. The scripture says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. 
But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. I want to speak once more from this subject separating fact from fiction or distinguishing the truth from that which is false, discerning what's true from that which is error. Now, one of the things that we've seen over and over again in our study through 1 John is the fact that John presents his readers with a series of tests that they can apply to their life for the sake of assurance. There's some tests we can apply to our faith if we want to examine our faith to see whether or not we're truly in the faith. And the first test that John has mentioned is uh, the moral or ethical test. He says that genuine believers are known by a consistent, persistent pattern of obedience to God. That's not to say that they won't sin because they will. However, Habitual sin will not be characteristic of the life of a person who truly has come to know the Lord. A second test that he mentions is social. Uh, Do I love my brothers and my sisters from the heart? Uh, Is there a love for the brethren that's present within my life? And if so, then this serves as an evidence that I've passed from death unto life and I've truly come to know the Lord. The third test that John lays down uh, is one that he lays down in this passage here, and really it's the doctrinal test. What do I believe about the person of Jesus Christ? Do I confess that Jesus is the Christ? He's the Son of God who's come in the flesh? Because what I believe about Jesus is the most important of tests. And according to the message of 1 John, those who deny the truth of who Jesus Christ is Well, they failed the test. And so, again, in this passage, John has pointed out to his readers why he's writing these things to them. He says to begin with, it's because of what they know to be true. He's not giving them some new truth here or some new insight here, but he's simply reminding them of the truth that they've already come to know and embrace. And so he's wanting them to live with certainty in what they've already come to know. And that's true for all of us as believers. Down in verse 26, he says there's a second reason that he's writing, and it's because of the error that they're up against. There were some lies that were being introduced in John's day. Many were falling prey to these lies and to these deceivers. And so John says in verse 26, I'm writing to you about those who were trying to deceive you. 
He's warning the church against those who actively sought to lead God's people astray. We know that the enemy is Satan, and he works overtime to keep people blinded to the fact that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. That you can't know God apart through faith in God's Son. But you see, you've got to believe in the real Jesus. You've got to come to know who Jesus Christ truly is and receive him in faith. So a few things in this passage that I really want to point out, uh, the first of which I've already emphasized, and it's the reality of satanic deception. John is warning his readers against the reality of satanic deception. He's expressing his concern that those within the church not become prey to the enemy's deception. So really, he's warning them against this tendency this reality of spiritual deception in the world. And we saw how he describes the times there in verse number 18. He says that it's the last hour. And uh, that's a phrase that he's simply using to set the times in their proper context. That phrase, last hour, often it's used interchangeably with other expressions throughout the New Testament, such as last days or last time. And these are used to identify the time period that commenced with the first coming of Christ and will culminate ultimately with the second coming of Christ when he returns in glory. And so someone says, well, pastor, do you really believe that we're living in the last days? If I had a dollar for every time I've been asked that question in the last two years, I'd have a pocket full of cash right now. But technically, we've been living in last days since the first coming of Jesus. Because all of history prior to that point was leading up to that point where Messiah would come and suffer and die for the sins of his people, be buried, raised to life again. And there's the promise that he's coming again and he's going to establish his kingdom upon earth. And so we're living between the times, if you will, living between the first and second coming of Jesus And during this unique time period, the Lord is actively building his church. His church is comprised of people from every nation and every tribe and every tongue. Jesus is building his church. And the reason that the church is the best thing going on planet Earth right now, that's why the enemy is fighting so hard against it in these days. And often the way that the enemy will try to attack the church is through outward persecution that he'll try to stir up against the church. And when that's not successful, in a more subtle way, he'll stir up controversy within the church through doctrinal confusion. And that's what was happening in the church in John's day. And you'll notice that he uses this word, antichrist. He says that the believers are aware of the fact that an antichrist would come on the scene in the last days. And this word antichrist appears five times in Scripture, each of which you find from the pen of the Apostle John. And listen to what he says here in verse 18. It's the last hour, and you've heard that the antichrist is coming. And yet, even now, many antichrists have appeared, and by this we know that it's the last hour. If you want to know what he's talking about, you skip down to verse 22. He says, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. 
In chapter 4, he says, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard is coming and now is already in the world. And so an understanding of what the Bible says about Antichrist, not only is the Antichrist the final end-time enemy of the people of God who will one day be manifest, but beyond that, the spirit of Antichrist is already working in the world, and it's the spirit that denies the person and work of Jesus Christ. The spirit of Antichrist is any teaching or any idea that would deny the reality of who Jesus Christ is as he's revealed in the word. And so this description of the times then leads to a denial of the truth there. John is saying that Antichrist, it's all about denying the truth. Even Jesus himself said that the last days would be marked by false religious claims He said, see that no one lead you astray because many will come in my name and they'll have religious ideas and they'll say things like this, I'm the Christ, I have answers for the world and they'll lead many astray according to what the Lord says. And so over again throughout the gospels, Jesus implored his disciples to be on guard against this kind of deception. And John is saying here that many antichrists Peddling these false ideas have already been introduced into the world. And it's the enemy's way of trying to keep people blinded to who Jesus is. And then this involves a departure from the faith, according to verse 19. Where do these antichrists come from? Well, John says in verse 19, they went out from us. That means that these false teachers who were spreading false ideas, they once openly identified with the people of God. They had come out of the churches. They had come up with their own version of the gospel that suited their own desires. So pay attention to what John is saying here. These were not pagan opponents of the faith who were openly hostile to the gospel. They didn't come from the outside. No, they came from the inside. And they attempted to corrupt the church by pretending to be Christians And folks, when you consider all of this, it will help you see how people can easily get swept up by anti-Christian ideas. And it's because those who present those ideas often pass themselves off as Christians. And those who buy into their ideas are so unfamiliar with the truth that they can't separate fact from fiction. So the reality of satanic deception. Now, notice that leads to a second thing, and it's this. The need for spiritual discernment. In this passage, John really emphasizes the need of spiritual discernment on the part of God's people. These false teachers, they went out from us because they were not of us. He says, had they been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they're not of us. But notice the difference here. He says, but you, he's talking to his readers. He's talking to the church. He's reassuring believers. He says, you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. That is, they had not fallen victim to deception, but they were marked by spiritual discernment because they were really in the faith. And that's what he's saying there in verse number 20. So there's this noticeable difference in them versus those who went out. Those who went out from us versus those who are of us. 
See, the thing is, you can be around the people of God and not be in the number of the people of God. There's a difference in being around the church and around the things of God as opposed to truly belonging to the church, knowing Christ personally and intimately. So notice a couple of things here as far as spiritual discernment. Uh, Notice the explanation that's given. Uh, John is pointing out that those who had been professors of the faith, who enthusiastically attached themselves to the people of God, they were never possessors of the faith to begin with. And this is clear in the way that he says they went out from us, they were never of us. And their true colors became clear over this issue of who Jesus really is. Because the Jesus that they preached and claimed to know was not the Jesus of the Bible. It was a watered-down version of Jesus. It involved the denial of his deity, his humanity, a rejection of his authority. And that's why John calls them antichrists. Because it's a word that means in the place of or opposed to the true Christ. So the idea is these false teachers, they, they found Christ useful. But unlike true believers, they never found Christ beautiful. You see, the thing is, Jesus is useful to a lot of people. Maybe it gives, he gives them a get-out-of-hell-free card. And then they go on living life for themselves and there's not been a real change because they've never truly been converted. And Jesus is just useful to serve them. But you see, the thing is, genuine conversion, when it takes place in a person's life, not only is Jesus useful, let me tell you, he's beautiful. He's the beautiful Lord who suffered and died and rose again and who's worthy of our worship and allegiance. So the thing is, John is describing some people whose rebel hearts were never loyal to Jesus to begin with. Kind of reminds me of something I read. Uh, We're back in the 1930s. The nation of Spain found itself embroiled in political controversy that really descended into a terrible civil war. And as the conflict was raging on, battles were raging on, the, the leader of the resistance, his name was General Emilio Mola, but he was preparing to take the city of Madrid He had four columns of troops that he had poised to take the city. And someone asked him which of those columns would be the first to attack. And he said, the fifth. General Mola's most important line of attack was not the four military columns that he had stationed on the outside of the city, but rather the rebel sympathizers who were inside the city who went unnoticed in the city but were already preparing for his advance on the city. (laughs) And so that term, fifth column, has come to refer to those who sympathize with an attacker and aid that attacker from the inside. And the fifth column is what John is warning the church against here. See, because the thing is, in the first century, the latter part of the first century, there was a battle that was raging. And it involved those who claimed to be the followers of Jesus, who made professions of faith, who knew how to speak the language, who by all appearances appeared to be sincere. And it started with men like Judas Iscariot and 
Then it went on to include others like Simon the Magician in Acts chapter 8. Or a fellow by the name of Demas, who Paul talks about in 2 Timothy chapter 4, who abandoned him because he was so in love with this present world. See, the battle was against counterfeits, pretenders to the faith, who are described elsewhere as being apostates. Apostasy. This is really the issue that the Apostle John is describing here. Now, by the way, I don't think I've ever preached a message on apostasy. I've never really dealt with a passage where apostasy is described in such clear terms, but that's what John is talking about here. Now, let me tell you, there's an entire book of the Bible that's devoted to this issue of apostasy, and it's the second to the last book of the New Testament, the book of Jude. It's a small little book, only consists of 25 verses, but Jude deals with this issue of apostasy. In fact, why don't you just flip over to the book of Jude for just a second, just a few pages over from 1 John. But Jude was written to expose false teachers and to encourage believers to stand firm in the faith. And listen to what Jude says to the church there in verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now listen to this, verse 4. He says, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So he's describing the fifth column. Men who crept in unnoticed. The King James says it this way, men who crept in unawares. I think the NIV translates it as those who secretly slipped in because it translates a compound word, the only time this Greek word is used in the New Testament. And the idea is that of a secret infiltration which had happened within the church. Something that was going on under the radar. William Barclay says of this particular Greek word that it was used of the seductive words of someone who would plead their case cleverly, seeping gradually into the minds of a judge and jury. It was a word used of an outlaw slipping secretly back into the country from which he had been expelled. It was used of the slow, subtle entry of innovations into the life of society, which in the end undermined and break the ancestral laws. And it always indicates a stealthy insinuation of something evil into a society. Well, let me tell you, the enemy loves to work under the radar. And so these apostates had quietly infiltrated the church. By all appearances, they seemed to be sincere. We're not God. We can't see a person's heart. But once these individuals had become established and trusted, it wasn't long before they began to attack the core of Christian doctrine. And Jude says that they did it in two ways. Look at verse 4. He says the first thing they did was turning the grace of God into sensuality. Their first attack involved perverting the grace of God and turning the grace of God into something that it was never intended to be. 
Instead of understanding God's grace as forgiveness from the guilt of sin, freedom to live the Christian life and pursue holiness, they radically reinterpreted grace as the freedom to indulge in all sorts of immoral behavior. It was perverted grace. It was grace that was turned into license. A second way they attacked the faith was in their denial of Jesus Christ as our only master and Lord. Do you see that? They loved to use his name, but they denied his lordship. So two things that these apostates were known for, they perverted his grace and they denied his lordship. They twisted his grace and turned it into something that it was never intended to be and they denied his sovereign lordship over their lives. Chuck Swindoll says that rejection of moral standards always affects faithfulness to doctrinal truth. And departure from doctrinal standards always leads to lax morality. And how in the minds of many, Jesus is nothing more than a free public defender to get them out of jail and back on the streets to continue with business as usual. And so what Jude is describing here, he's describing those who reject the true and rightful status of Jesus Christ as master and Lord in life. And so it always is with those who are apostate. Now listen, this is so relevant. I don't know of anything more relevant to, to, to where we are in so much of the confessing church throughout the Western world. Because what Jude describes here and what the Apostle John is describing in 1 John 2, it's the spirit behind so much of this deconstruction trend that's happening among many today. I used that word last week. I want to come back to it and just give you a little bit more definition. Deconstruct or deconstruction, which, by the way, let me say this for the record, not all of it is bad. And to be clear, when it's a good thing when people question man's way of doing things if it means greater obedience to God, which, by the way, that's what the Protestant Reformation was all about. That should be a spirit that constantly characterizes the church of Jesus Christ. We should constantly hold our traditions lightly for the sake of greater obedience and fidelity to the call of God and the commission of God upon our life as a church. But this issue of deconstruction, what I'm talking about is in the area of faith and doctrine Deconstruction in the sense that a person rejects the authority of the Bible, the fundamentals of the faith in favor of a more progressive or culturally acceptable version of Christianity, which is really nothing more than a departure from orthodoxy. One person defines it this way. It's the process of systematically dissecting and often rejecting the beliefs you grew up with. And sometimes... The professing Christian will deconstruct all the way to atheism. Some remain there. Others experience a reconstruction. But the type of faith they end up embracing almost never resembles the Christianity that they formerly knew. I'll tell you who said that. It was Elisa Childers. She was a member of a popular Christian singing group some years ago. By her own admission, she had been shallow in the faith. And, and she was challenged in her faith, and she really began to dig deep in her faith. And so now she's really a leading thinker and speaker 
especially as it relates to this issue of apologetics. I've got some statistics, but let me preface those by saying that I am absolutely grateful to those among the youngest generations that God is raising up in our churches. And in our church right here, God is raising up some godly young men and some godly young women who were absolutely unashamed, bold in their faith, not content with business as usual kind of church. But they're surrendered and they're sold out. They long to see revival in their day. and They're committed to the gospel. They're leading the way. And yet they realize that reaching their generation for Christ, it's a matter of spiritual warfare that involves a battle of ideas. And I'll tell you somebody who actually has a lot to say about this right now. It's Dr. David Jeremiah. I don't know if any of you have been listening to David Jeremiah, but he, his recent book, <clears throat> Where Do We Go From Here? He's got an entire chapter in that book that he devotes to the subject, this issue of apostasy. In that chapter, listen to this, uh, he says there are more than 72 million millennials in the United States, almost a quarter of the population. An increasingly large percentage of that generation has walked away from the faith of any kind, choosing to identify as religiously unaffiliated or religious nuns. In 2008, researchers noted that close to a third of millennials which is at 31.9%, they described themselves as religiously unaffiliated. Just 10 years later, 2018, that number was at 42.7%. He says there are more troubling numbers. Church membership in America has suffered a decades-long decline. When Gallup first measured U.S. church membership in 1937, that number came in at 73%. We were fewer in number as far as the population in 1937, but 73% of the population had a church membership somewhere. Even in the early 1980s, more than 70% of American adults were church members. By the year 2000, it dropped to 65%. By 2010, it was 59%. By 2020, it was less than 50%. And now less than half of Americans belong to a local church with corresponding declines in regular church attendance. What he's saying there is that the statistics show that fewer and fewer people are actually belonging to a church. And of those who claim to belong to a church, fewer and fewer of them are attending actively, consistently, and regularly. And you add to that, where we've been in the last two years, and you kind of see where we are. Jude talks about it. The Apostle John talks about it. The Apostle Paul describes something that's going to happen in the last days, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and he actually uses this word apostasy. He says that before that day comes, before the future man of sin is revealed, there will be a rebellion. An apostasy, it's something that's definite, it's something that's pronounced, it's a turning away from the faith. It's what happens when a person who once claimed to be a Christian turns away from the faith or they reject the apostolic faith in favor of a cultural counterfeit. 
They want to redefine that faith. They may use the language of Jesus and the language of grace, but they've redefined those terms to mean something that the Scriptures never intended for them to mean. And so apostates are those who fall away from the truth, who abandon what they formerly professed to believe. And John says they went out from us because they were not of us to begin with. Now, he's not talking about people who leave the church for another church. I could preach a whole other sermon on that issue. There are legitimate reasons why people should leave one church to go to another. Most of those reasons, though, are so superficial that I'm embarrassed to even mention them. But what John is talking about, the Apostle John is talking about those who at one point openly identified with the faith, who belonged to the number. They were counted in attendance, but they went out having bought into false ideas and were spreading those false ideas. And John says the fact that they went out was proof that they were never really of us to begin with. The true measure of a church has never been its attendance numbers. The true measure of the success of a church has never been its seating capacity. But folks, it's always been the purity of its doctrine and the devotion of its membership to the Lord Jesus Christ. And by and large, what happens as far as the future of this local church, listen to me, it doesn't so much depend upon superficial stuff as much as it depends on what are we going to do with the gospel as a local fellowship. What are we going to do with this truth of who Jesus Christ really is? Now, that's the explanation that's given. i got to stop here, but that does lead to an experience that's genuine. And again, to reassure these believers, John comes alongside them and says, let me tell you, you've been anointed by the Holy One and you have knowledge. These Gnostic teachers, these antichrists went out of the church and they were saying, well, what you really need is this secret hidden wisdom that you can't find in the apostolic faith. But now you buy into our ideas and we'll give you some secret knowledge. That's what they were saying. You've got to have some kind of additional subjective experience to really know God. And John blows that up and says it ain't true. Let me tell you, you got all of God you're ever going to get when you came to faith in Jesus Christ and God gave you all of himself. You've been anointed by the Holy One. The Spirit of the living God came to live within you as a believer and you have knowledge. You know God. You don't need man's ideas. You don't need the culture's ideas. God's given you everything you need for life and godliness and you'll find it in the Word of God. And you'll find it in the abiding presence of the Spirit of God who's come to live within you. Would you stand with me for prayer? The reality of satanic deception only serves to emphasize the need for spiritual discernment on the part of God's people. We'll come back to this later on, but John goes on and talks about the importance of sound doctrine. And he calls upon believers to abide in what they have heard from the beginning, what they know to be the truth. And he says this is the promise that he's made to us, eternal life. Do you know Jesus Christ? I'm talking about the real Jesus. 
Have you bowed to him as Lord? Or is he just useful? Have you found him beautiful? Because those who truly come to know him, they find him beautiful. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you've never repented of your sins and placed your faith and trust in Jesus, let me tell you, he died for your sin on the cross, rose again from the dead, and the scripture says, whoever turns from their sin, places their faith and trust in Jesus will be saved. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. In mystery of all mysteries, gifts of all gifts, the Spirit himself comes to take up residence in the heart and life of a believer. And he changes you from the inside out. He'll give you what you need. I know there are a lot of you this morning, you're discouraged. You're weary. You're concerned maybe over a son or a daughter or a grandchild. They're asking questions and you're wondering if they've walked away from the faith. Let me say this, it can be a good thing that they're asking questions. Because one thing I can say with certainty is that this faith that's been once for all delivered to the saints, it will hold up under man's scrutiny every time. The word of our God is indestructible. Heaven and earth will pass away, but Jesus said his words will abide forever. And so the fact that many are asking questions, let me tell you what, I can say with certainty the only thing the world can give them is going to lead to a cul-de-sac, a dead end. But Jesus and his word, the gospel, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You'll find life only in him. So Lord, take these words, these truths, and change us, Lord. May we be discerning in this late hour when there are so many ideas. We see them in our social media feed and we hear them in our casual conversations with people. The enemy knows that his days are numbered and he wants to keep people blinded to the reality of who Jesus is. But Lord, you've committed your truth to us as your church. May we be ambassadors for Christ to a world that desperately needs to hear the truth and to know Christ and be saved. God, whatever men and women are wrestling with in their lives, maybe they're concerned over a loved one who's walked away from the faith. Lord, encourage them with this truth. Encourage them with this truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.